Good morning, brothers and sisters. It's a joy to come together again after um, challenging weeks that for many of us, for many uh, in our church family, thinking of Mike and Tara this morning, uh, praying for them. And uh, it's a joy to be able to come together in God's house, approach his word, and learn about his unchanging character. By means of recap, we are on uh, week two of probably an eight-week study on the book of Amos, a minor prophet with major relevance, some applicability for today. By means of, of recap from last week, we learned that Amos was a shepherd, a dresser of sycamore figs. He was sent from the southern kingdom of Judah to take a message to the northern kingdom of Israel. And as we'll see today, he not only delivered a prophetic message to the northern people of Israel, but also to the the nations that surrounded both Judah and Israel. Today we'll be doing a little bit of a geography lesson as well as a, a history lesson to really understand what it is that God is communicating through Amos to these various different people groups. We saw that in the time of Amos, it was a time of economic prosperity. Judah and Israel had both taken back some territories from the nations around them. They'd fortified their cities. We also saw that it was a time of religious syncretism. They were supposed to have sent the Canaanites running and displaced those foreign gods, but instead they embraced those foreign gods, mixing the worship of Yahweh with the worship of false gods. And we also see in this time of Amos moral degeneracy. We see things that are inhumane, that are against the moral laws of God. And for some of those things, we'll see the people rebuked by Amos, through Amos by God, rather. That will force us as a congregation to to talk a little bit about social justice, a bit of a, a delicate thing because we know that many congregations err towards stepping away from preaching the gospel to deal with themes of social injustice. On the other hand, perhaps I might dare to say that in the reform circles, we, we maybe overlook some of those social issues. And so one of the things that I pray the Holy Spirit would do in and through um, the teaching of Amos is to make us aware of what God's response is to the wickedness in the world. With that said, let's uh, do a read-through on the first chapter of Amos. As we do that, I would like you to look for a couple of patterns. You now have these uh, handy little um, books. I uh, mentioned to Samer, this is a bit of an introduction of Amos and sort of a gateway drug, right? We also get to look at Hosea and Joel and Amos and Obadiah. So we'll be looking at a couple of those other minor prophets as well. But I definitely encourage you to, to do some underlining. And as you underline, I would like to um, point out four kind of theological themes of the book of Amos. Perhaps write these down in the margin, and then as we read through, you can watch for these themes. Themes that we'll see, number one, and this is a, a theme of scripture from cover to cover, the sovereignty of God. God's sovereign will is on display in this first chapter of Amos, as it is in every other chapter in Scripture, right? A second theme is the theme of covenant. What we'll see is that God is directing a message both to his, his covenant people as well as to the Gentile nations around them 
inviting them, in a, in a sense, to also be part of his new covenant people. We'll see that in today's teaching as well. A third theme is a the theme of idolatry and social injustice. We'll see some, some tough themes in terms of God addressing the conduct of the nations around Judah and Israel. And in fact, even of the conduct of Judah and Israel. And a fourth theme that's inescapable as we come to scripture is God's mercy and his faithfulness. So we'll watch for those four themes throughout our study over the next eight weeks. The sovereignty of God, the covenant, idolatry and social injustice, and God's mercy and faithfulness. But as we do this read through on chapter one, there's a couple of things that I want to have you look for. One is, anytime you see something about a, a walled city or a fortress or a gate or a stronghold, maybe underline it. This is really important because as we looked last week at the life of Uzziah, we saw that King Uzziah was given great favor and built all of those things. All of those things, they gave him and the people of Judah a false sense of confidence. We have all sorts of things in our own life that we put trust in, in our retirement and accounts, in our health, and in our security, and all of the plans that we have. And those things, God can revoke in an instant. So look as you see God addressing each of these different people groups and see what God thinks about those man-made strongholds. The next thing that I want you to look for is a pattern that repeats. We're going to go through and we're going to see, I'll help you with an outline in just a moment, a pattern of God saying, enough is enough. What we see is, as a phrase is, for three transgressions of, insert the name of the people group, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. We see this idea of enough's enough. Three strikes and you're out, right? The, the fourth strike. So look for those things. That pattern of three strikes and then for the fourth and look for the idea of walled cities, strongholds, and gates and see what God has to say. Let's begin with Amos chapter one, verse one. The words of Amos who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Hazel, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants of the valley of Avon. And him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Kerr, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Eden, Edom. So I will send fire upon the wall of Gaza and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. 
So I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre, and it shall devour her strongholds. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Edom, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity. And his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. So I will send a fire upon Taman, and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of the Ammonites, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead, that they might enlarge their border. So I will kindle a fire in the wall of Reba, and it shall devour her strongholds. And with shouting on the day of battle, with tempest in the day of whirlwind, and their king shall go into their exile, he and his princes together, says the Lord. We'll stop there. There's several more woes for these surrounding nations coming up for us in the beginning part of chapter 2. But let's pray and ask the Lord for direction as we analyze a, a part of this text and, and do some learning together this morning. Father God, we, we come before you and we ask for your Holy Spirit's wisdom and discernment. We ask for the ability to, to give attention and care to the names of the people and the places that are recorded in your perfect scripture. For these are there for our benefit, for our teaching, and indeed they all point to your son Jesus Christ as your son Jesus Christ points to these texts to give us understanding of, of who you are and, and your desire for your people. We just pray for this direction as we worship you this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Before we get into the actual outline, I want to take us back to the second verse. We made it through about one verse last week, right? The study is progressing very quickly. <laughs> we got through King Uzziah and King Jeroboam the second. But the second verse is a verse I want to, to spend just a minute or two on with you this morning. The second verse of Amos chapter 1 says, And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pasture of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. This is a, an interesting verse because there are four different times in the Old Testament where God is referred to as a lion roaring. We're going to look at three of them together, and this will give us a chance to, uh, to try out our, our new handy book here, since finding minor prophets is always a little challenging, right? We'll just go a few pages before, and we're going to go to Hosea chapter 11. And as we all know, the book of Hosea deals with the, the people of Israel and their covenant unfaithfulness to God. The prophet Hosea is instructed to marry an unfaithful prostitute wife, and that is a de vivid depiction of Israel's unfaithfulness. And the, uh, the 11th chapter of the book of Hosea is a bit of a, a bright spot, if you will, talking about God's unfailing love for his, his people Israel. And towards the end of that chapter, verse 10 says, They shall go after the Lord, and he will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. What an interesting picture. We have God as a lion roaring and his children in a, in a response to his stern yet evident love come trembling to him. What an interesting and vivid picture. The second time in the Minor Prophets that we find this image of God as a lion roaring is in Joel chapter 3. In the account in Joel chapter 3, is almost verbatim the same message that Amos delivers. As Pastor John said recently, don't mess with the message, right? So we can see here we've got different messengers, but with the same message. And here's what we see in Joel chapter 3, verse 16. 
The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. Isn't that remarkable? Doesn't that give you chills after just going through Amos chapter 1 and looking for walls and, and gates and strongholds? Who's supposed to be their stronghold? God is, but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. Now, this is the, the third time in the minor prophets that we see this expression. Amos chapter 1, verse 2, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Each of these three references to God as a roaring lion become a little bit more severe for the people of Israel. First, it's them being restored and, and coming to him as this, their trembling children. And in the second time, the Lord roars from Zion, but he's their refuge and their stronghold. This third time, on the other hand, the pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Now the lion is coming with yet a, a different and increasingly stern message. If we go back to the image we have of, of the lion, I couldn't help but have this quote come to mind from C.S. Lewis. In the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's this dialogue, and it says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He is the king, I tell you. And what an amazing picture that, that C.S. Lewis brings to mind of this whole idea of a lion. But as we see Amos chapter 1, verse 2, the lion is roaring. He's roaring from, from Jerusalem, and his message is going out, not just to the northern kingdom, but to all the nations around. And this message of Amos is one where we're being warned that enough is enough. The lion is coming out of his cave coming out of his den, he's speaking from Jerusalem and his wrath will be poured out. Now I want to share a mental image with you and forgive me if it comes across as uh, slightly irreverent, but I think it's helpful. Uh, during a, a time of study in my life, uh, a man who uh, I believe has a good understanding of the Old Testament shared that, that God's cup is, is like a cup of wrath and in his forbearance, it, it will be filled as the iniquity of a, of a people fill it to the brim. But there comes a point at which the cup overflows. That wrath of God must be dispensed of, right? I, for those of you who have uh, kids who have been to those indoor water parks, there's those big buckets of water that fill and you, you can watch it as it fills with water and eventually it gets to that tipping point and it pours out. And that's what we see throughout times of scripture where God's forbearance, he'll allow something to come. Pastor John mentioned the verse last week, the, the sins of the, of the Amorites had not come to their fullness, right? We have this idea of God's wrath brimming over. I'm gonna insert your homework for next week in here, okay? Everybody if you're ready for your homework. I'm only gonna mention one verse from it because you have to read the entire chapter for yourselves. But this is from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 18. And this gives us some important understanding of God's unchanging character. There are so many amazing truths about God's interaction with sinful people in here. I would call your attention specifically to verse 23 of Ezekiel 18. You'll get to read the whole thing this week, right? 
Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? And at the end of this chapter, chapter 18, verse 30, God says to his people, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn away from your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. This chapter is essential for us to be able to, to go joyfully through the next seven weeks of studying the book of Amos because it's a lot of doom and gloom. This cup of wrath is overflowing. But remember why. Our God is not a God who delights in the death of the wicked. What is it that he desires? Turn and repent. And that's the theme that, that we'll see and that, that we, we must preach to ourselves as we go through this. That said... Amos chapter 1, verse 3 starts with, thus says the Lord. This is his message of impending wrath, impending destruction, but as always, aimed at the goal of bringing about repentance. So, we see a number of different people groups in here, and I want you to just make an outline, if we can pull up the, uh, the map screen here. This will give you a... Next week, I'll try to print this out because I know it's a little bit small, but what we'll see here is that God is directing messages of punishment to each of the regions around where the people of Israel live. So if you make an outline, if you would, the first judgment that God has is for Damascus. This is Amos chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, Damascus. And you can put in parentheses next to that, Syria, right? This is the nation of, of Syria. The second is the region of Gaza. Gaza, you can put in parentheses next to that, the Philistines. And the third is judgment for Tyre, Tyre or Sidon, which is also known in scripture as Phoenicia. After Tyre, we go to the Edomites, judgment for Edom. And after the Edomites, we see that there's punishment for the Ammonites. And after the Moabites, there's a message for Judah and then for Israel. Now, all of this sounds like outdated people groups and stuff that's really hard for us to understand. Who are these people? But Scripture tells us and gives us a great deal of information about each of these. This is really important for us to understand God's unchanging character. For today, we're going to try to tackle the first three, okay? Judgment for Damascus or Syria. We're going to try to tackle judgment for Gaza, or the Philistines, and judgment for Tyre, ending specifically on God's message for the people of Tyre and for Sidon. So going back to the first chapter of Amos, let's read again from verses 3 through 5. This is the message of God to the people of Damascus. For three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. For they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Hazel, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon. And him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Ker, says the Lord. 
Now, what do we know about Damascus? What do you know about, uh, about Syria? I did a, a little bit of a re- review of First and Second Kings, and I'd like to share with you a few of the, the highlights. But we have generations of war going back and forth between Syria and Israel. In fact, we're going to look specifically at the names of Hazel and Ben-Hadad, but I can give you a few of the highlights. Some of the highlights involve the people of Samaria being besieged for such a long time by the Samarian army that they were forced into cannibalism. They would eat their own young for lack of food because the Samarians had brutally seized them and closed them off. Then in a really bizarre military victory, we've got a couple of lepers outside of the city walls of Samaria, and they're like, well, look, we're either going to die out here or we're going to die in there. Let's just go over and check out the Syrian camp. And the Syrians heard the sound of a couple of lepers coming, and they thought, oh, no, the people of Samaria and all of the contracted armies of the Hittites are coming. We should flee. So at the sound of four lepers, the entire Syrian army left, and the people out of Samaria were saved and came out. (laughs) It's quite an extraordinary story. We also have times where there is such brutal war crimes committed. In fact, some of them are mentioned here. It says, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron, right? One of the things that they would do is put their prisoners out, prisoners of war, lay them on the ground, and drive over them with chariots. What God is speaking out against here are brutal war crimes. War crimes against their neighboring nations, war crimes against the people of Israel, and God is calling them out on that. Interestingly, as we look through the the military exchanges that happened, a bit of cat and mouse between Samaria and Israel, we see that several of the times that the Samarians were built, they would go back and they would say, oh, you know what? We got beat today because we were praying to the God of the hills. We should have been praying to the God of the valleys, right? But in the midst of all of this, we find a unique encounter in 2 Kings chapter 8. I'd like for you to turn there if you would. 2 Kings chapter 8. We're going to look at, starting at verse 7, how King Hazel comes to be king. It's important to note, you may recall uh, last year had the opportunity to preach, and we talked about how Elijah ended his ministry. He ended his ministry by saying, God, am I the only one left? Remember, he disqualified himself for future ministry because of his actions. One of the things that God told him to do, told Elijah to do, is to go and anoint Hazel king of Syria. Interesting, because Hazel would be used by God to carry out judgment against the people of Israel. Sometime later, instead of just seeing Elijah with a future anointing of Hazel, we now have this exchange where the king of Syria falls ill, and where does he go to but the God of Israel for some consolation? Now, this is war going back and forth. We've had times where one nation pays tribute to the other back and forth. We've got lots of bloodshed. But the king of Syria is sick, and who does he send for? But Elijah's successor, Elisha. I'll read it for you, beginning at verse 7 of 2 Kings chapter 8. Now Elisha came to Damascus. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And when it was told to him, the man of God has come here, the king said to Hazel, take him a present with you and go to meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord, saying, shall I recover from this sickness? So Hazel went to meet him and took a present with him, all kinds of goods of Damascus, 40 camel loads. And when he came and stood before him, he said, Your son, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent to me, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? What an interesting encounter. We've got warring nations and a sick king, Ben-Hadad, 
sending his messenger, Hazel, with 40 camels worth of goods to get some good news on the medical prognosis of the king. After summoning their own gods for military victories, look what God he goes to. And this is an important application for us as believers because the world around us has all sorts of gods. They have gods who are no gods at all, right? But when the going gets tough, don't they often come to God's people for a word of consolation? Don't they often come to God's people for a glimmer of hope? If we give them anything less than the word of God, shame on us. So Elisha delivers God's word to this pagan king, this, this messenger of a pagan king. And look at the interchange. This is absolutely fascinating, the detail of God's word. Your son, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent to me saying, shall I recover from the sickness? And Elisha said to him, go, say to him, you shall certainly recover. But the Lord has shown me that he shall certainly die. And he fixed his gaze and stared at him until he was embarrassed. Picture that, if you will. Elisha stares at him awkwardly until he's embarrassed. What, a, what an interesting way of describing this interchange. <laughs> and then, after staring at him, Elisha starts to cry. Look what it says. And he fixed his gaze and stared at him until he was embarrassed. And the man of God wept. And Hazel said, why does my Lord weep? And he answered, because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses, and you will kill their young men with the sword and dash in pieces their little ones and rip open their pregnant women. And Hazel said, What is your servant, who is but a dog, that he should do this great thing? Elisha answered, The Lord has shown me that you are to be king over Syria. Now look at this. Then he departed from Elisha and came to his master, who said to him, What did Elisha say to you? And he answered, He told me that you would certainly recover. Now read verse 15 super carefully. But the next day, he took a bedcloth and dipped it in water and spread it over the face till he died. And Hazel became king in his place. This Ben-Hadad gets this message, and then he goes and he kills the king so that he can take his place. In a bit of story that's too bizarre for us to understand, when Hazel becomes the king, he names his son Ben-Hadad. So we got two Ben-Hadads. We got the Ben-Hadad that he, got, that he bumped off, and then we got the Ben-Hadad that he has as his heir to the throne. Either way, the atrocities of this Hazel are so bad that in the book of Amos, we see God speaking out of them. Look what he says. So I will send fire, verse, verse 4 of Amos 1. So I will send fire upon the house of Hazel, and I shall, it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. The, the crimes were grievous. Assassination of, of his own king a massacre of the people of Israel, the charges against this nation of Damascus were long. But God was patient, forbearing. It says, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. It got to a point where he, he would no longer tolerate it. And during the time of Jeroboam II, we actually see some military victories where Israel takes back cities from Syria. Israel takes back territory from the leadership of Damascus. So for those of you who are interested in military history, I encourage you to read the, the Kings to understand a little bit more about this, this interchange between Samaria and Syria. Let's go on to verse six, the second of our, our list of messages to those foreign nations around 
Israel and Judah. Verse 6, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So I will send fire upon the wall of Gaza and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord. The text we'll look at in a minute talks a little bit about the Philistines, but we don't need to, to go very far into our knowledge of biblical history to understand who the people of Gaza are. These are the Philistines, right? This is Goliath that was slain by David. This is the group of people who would constantly attack the people of Israel to such a point that the city of Ekron comes to mind because the Philistines stole the Ark of the Covenant of God, took it to Ekron, and everybody mysteriously came down with tumors, right? This is not the first time we've, we've read about the atrocities of the Philistines. But yet God speaks out clearly and he says, your strongholds are going to be torn down. In fact, it's interesting, there's five key cities in the area of the Philistines, and the fifth of those cities is a town called Gath that's not even mentioned here. It may have already been destroyed. And so the Lord was going to give victories to his people, his sinful people, over the Philistines. But I want to spend the, the remaining time together in this next message towards the people of Tyre. So let's go to verse 9. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send fire upon the wall of Tyre and it shall devour her strongholds. One thing to keep in mind as we, as we look at this text is that God has not in scripture taken his people Israel off into some quiet corner and whispered to them in secret, the message that he has for the people of Israel are proclaimed for all of the nations to understand. Likewise, God addressing the nations, he has Israel as his captive audience listening. If you want a picture for those who are, who are parents, uh, lining up all of your kids and one of the kids in particular thinks that it's all going well for him because his siblings are getting chewed out, Right? Isn't it great? Have you ever been in that situation? All the, all the siblings are getting chewed out and you think you're good. And then all of a sudden the focus turns to you. Right? But what's happening here is God is addressing each one of these children. And the message is being shared with each one of them. And then he comes back. Yeah, but you, you knew better. <laughs> right? Like that's what's going on here. But God is, is calling out this nation of, of Tyre and it's twin city of, of Sidon. And this area was known as Phoenicia. And it's really, really relevant, the crimes of the Phoenicians. So we saw the, the first crime of the, the Syrians was that they had war crimes, atrocities committed. And now we get into the nations of Tyre and Sidon, and they're guilty of human trafficking. Let's look at a couple of texts together. Let's go first to uh, Joel chapter 3 which is actually the, the same chapter where we saw the Lord roaring from Jerusalem. But we'll start at the beginning of this chapter. And through the prophet Joel, we'll start at the beginning of the chapter, we see the, the charges brought against the Phoenicians. Joel chapter 3, verse 1. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. 
and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land, and have cast lots for my people, and have traded a boy for a prostitute, and have sold a girl for wine, and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return repayment on your own head swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold and carried my treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place where you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and daughters into the hands of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken." Verses 9 and 10, we'll read as well. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am, your, I am a warrior. So that text is, is super fascinating because what we see is that Tyre and Sidon are into this human trafficking the, the cities are cities that are actually amongst the longest inhabited, inhabited cities in history. There had always been a population there. It was positioned in what is now modern-day Lebanon. And they would use those ports to, to send to faraway lands. And they would actually take people, put them on boats, and sell them to the areas of, of the Hellenistic world. And, and Scripture actually says, you've sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the, to the Greeks, right? There's a clear accusation of what they've done. And for those of you who uh, are interested in looking at the book of Isaiah, I find it fascinating that verse 10 says, beat your plowshares into swords. Isn't that hard to read? We're used to reading it the other way around. Beat your swords into plowshares. But in this case, God's saying, get ready, Tyre and Sidon, because my people are coming for you. The next text I want you to look at just briefly with regards to Tyre and Sidon is in Isaiah chapter 23. It's such an important message of judgment. Keep in mind now that Amos is a shepherd prophet to the northern kingdom, and Isaiah is a contemporary of his who's delivering a message primarily to the southern kingdom, but some of the same things are happening at the same time. So the 23rd chapter of Isaiah is focused exclusively on Tyre and Sidon. And look at the charges that God brings against Tyre and Sidon. I won't read the entirety of the chapter, but there's a couple of verses that are really worth mentioning. Verse 9 says, The Lord of hosts has purposed it to defile the pompous pride of all glory, to dishonor all the honored of the earth. So this, this area of Tyre was known for its pride, for its bowing up against God, its harsh treatment, and even enslaving of God's people. And so God has had enough for it. Look at verse 15. In that day, Tyre will be forgotten for 70 years, like the days of one king. At the end of 70 years, it will happen to Tyre as in the song of the prostitute. Take a harp, go about the city, O forgotten prostitute. Make sweet melody, sing many songs that you may be remembered. At the end of 70 years, the Lord will visit Tyre and she will return to her the wages and will prostitute herself with all the kingdoms of the world on the face of the earth. Her merchandise and her wages will be holy to the Lord. It will not be stored or hoarded, but the merchandise will supply abundant food and fine clothing to all who dwell before the Lord." This is a, a remarkable chapter where God directs this message to the Phoenician kingdom. He makes it clear what they're guilty of and calls them out. 
What's remarkable is that the time, the, the, the area where the Phoenicians lived continued to be populated and would be populated again in the time of Christ. In fact, we'll look together at Matthew chapter 11. Christ not only spends some time specifically in the regions of Tyre and Sidon, but he also calls them out specifically with regards to the relationship between Tyre and Sidon and the covenant people of Israel. This is Matthew chapter 11. We'll look at verse 20. Jesus is giving woes to the cities of Judea and making a comparison to the wickedness that was well-established of Tyre and Sidon. For thousands of years, Tyre and Sidon were known for, for really just being savage. And there was an ongoing animosity between the people of Israel and the Phoenicians. Look at verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for the, on the day of judgment for Tyre and for Sidon than for you. And for your Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Will you be brought down to Hades? For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sidon, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment than for the land of Sodom than for you. What an interesting comparison that, that Christ himself makes. But for us to truly understand the book of Amos and how it does in fact point to Christ is for us to understand how Christ points back. How Christ points back to these ongoing prophetic messages that the people of Israel must have known, right? Just like that child who's being reprimanded by the father, you want to recount how your sibling's getting punished, right? So the people of Israel would have thought of texts like Joel chapter 3 and Isaiah chapter 23 when they thought of Tyre and Sidon in Jesus' day. And yet Jesus leaves these regions, these cities of Chorazin, and goes to Tyre and to Sidon. Look with me, if you will, at Mark chapter 7. We'll look at verse 24. And from there he arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Like I said, one of the most one of the longest continually inhabited cities. In the book of Isaiah, it talks about a period of time where their population was reduced to a remnant. Sound a little familiar, right? But here it is, yet again, populated. Jesus walks there with his disciples, and it says, From there he arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house, and he did not anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Think back for just a minute to where we started with 2 Kings chapter 8. Where did the, the evil king of Syria send for when he was in hard times? He sent for Elisha. He sent for the God of Israel. And now we're in Tyre and Sidon and we have this, this woman who's a Gentile who is a descendant of those who sold God's people into slavery in Greece and beyond. And who does she seek after for a solution to her problem? But immediately the woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. And Mark adds here in verse 26, Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. 
And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Look at the interchange. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go on your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon's gone. Now, we've all heard this story many times, right? We knew she was a Gentile woman. We understand that Jesus is talking about the the people of Israel being the children seated at the table. And we understand that the Gentiles are the dogs eating the crumbs under the table. And as complicated as as that is for us to understand, if we look again at Amos chapter 1, we realize that this particular group of Gentiles are people from Tyre and from Sidon. All of this is part of an ongoing explanation that the gospel is bringing. The gospel is not just for the children seated at the table. It's told through the prophet Isaiah that the Messiah would come and be a light to the Gentiles. This message of of salvation through the gospel is also for the Gentiles. So if we look at our outline today and we see all these nations that are under God's divine judgment, guess what? Those same nations are under God's divine invitation for salvation. Amen? right? This gospel comes with it, the message that you guys will read as your homework in Ezekiel chapter 18. Does God delight in the destruction of the wicked? Absolutely not. His desire is for them to turn and to repent. That's why God sent the prophet Amos for his people and for the people that were surrounding the nation of Israel to come and to repent. And so we we see this interchange in the day of Christ. The Syrophoenician woman, and she says, Jesus, save my daughter, deliver my daughter from spiritual bondage. And he does. His comment is is remarkable. For this statement, you may go away. The demon has left your daughter. Christ responds and extends that salvation. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Praise God for that. We'll see that theme as we continue to to move through. I want to give a a quick bit of, of preamble for what we'll look into next week. The Edomites, the Ammonites, and the Moabites. Sounds like a lot of fun, right? Everybody's really excited to read through those. But I want to to give you some historical context before you look at the Ammonites and the Moabites. Because as uh, as New Covenant believers, sometimes we were a little bit careless about our genealogies, right? We were like, nah, that's for other false religions. We don't need to worry about genealogies. But you know what? It's all in the scriptures for a reason. So who are the Moabites and, and the Ammonites? And it's worth mentioning that Abraham and and Lot were saved from the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And one of the awful encounters that happens right after the city of Sodom and Gomorrah is saved, Lot's daughters get him drunk and have relations with him. I will never forget that because, well, in Honduras, um, I was covering for Pastor Melvin. Some of you have met him, and we were doing expository preaching, and so you sort of pick up where the, where the brother leaves off, and he, he asked me to cover the, that week on the book of Genesis. Please, any other text, but not that one. <clears throat> so anyway, I'm not going to preach it for you, but you can read it amongst yourselves. But what we'll come to learn is that Lot's two daughters, the first one, the, the, his two daughters, they each have a child. The first one becomes the father of the Moabites, and the other one, Ben-Ami, becomes the father of the Ammonites. So as we read through this and we see God's judgment on these people, that's where these people groups came from, okay? So good times, right? That said, Ezekiel 18 is study for next week. And what I 
what I want us to, to take away as we, we look at this is that God's message of, of judgment and God's message is one that in forbearance, he holds off. For three sins, yet for four, right? But in all of that, as a holy God, he is not a safe lion. He speaks out in judgment against sin and iniquity. And ultimately through Christ, he offers salvation to those same people. So Mark chapter seven, we praise God for seeing the Syrophoenician woman saved by his grace. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and praise you for the eternality of your word. We thank you for how these people and places are brought to life um, for us through your Holy Spirit, through the tapestry of scripture. God, we thank you that all of these connections can see their fulfillment in the coming of Jesus Christ, who came to, to bring salvation to these same regions, these same lands around your people Israel. We thank you, Lord God, that that message is for the Gentiles and that it continues to go out. We thank you that the message of, of Jesus Christ was the great commission establishing his church bought with the price of his blood to go and take this message to the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we just pray that as we, as we reflect on the wickedness of the world around us, we remind ourselves that ours is not the call to, to cheer on or pray for their judgment or doom, but rather to to cry out for the, their salvation. God, that is your heart. You never desire the destruction of the wicked, but you desire to see a turn in a repentance. May we be a repentant people. May we be sought out by the world around us and offer in turn the message of repentance and an invitation to salvation that you give universally. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.